Hello, this is Gerald O'Connor, and welcome to the Hand Me Down podcast, a podcast of history and family stories. The goal of this series is to tell some of the stories of my family in the context of the history in which those stories occurred. It's part genealogy and part history that I hope you'll enjoy. In episode eight, I told the story of the circumstances that may have persuaded my second great-grandfather, Michael O'Connor, to pack up his wife, Mary Elizabeth Kine, and six children, and leave his home in Ireland to come to America. In this episode, we continue with his journey in 1884 to a homestead outside of Grand Island, Nebraska. This past summer, my uncle Larry shared with me an amazing original photograph of Michael O'Connor's homestead taken in 1889, according to the handwritten text on the reverse side. On the front is written in pen in the bottom margin, Michael O'Connor Ranch near St. Michael. It's a wide shot of a sheep ranch with several men, women, and children visible in the distance. I was able to scan it as a high-resolution image file so that you can zoom in and get a good look at the details. I think I can make a pretty good guess as to the identity of the people in the image. Michael's face is weathered and tired. His 15-year-old son, David, squints beneath the brim of his hat into the low sunlight. The windmill and the large frame house dominate the picture. But you can also make out the remains of the old sod house in the back, and outbuildings, sheds, and a corn crib. Michael O'Connor's brother-in-law, Michael Kine, was the first of my family members from the Galway Mayo region of Ireland to leave and travel to America, immigrating to work on the Transcontinental Railroad in 1867. Within a few years, he was joined by his older brother, Anthony. By the mid-1870s, each of them had made a homestead application on 80 acres in the Cherry Creek Township outside of Grand Island, Nebraska. By 1880, they had added 80 acres more to each of their homesteads, along with frame houses, stables, wells, and fencing. The land they had chosen was located in a particularly fertile basin that included the gently meandering South Loop River, one of the tributaries of the Platte River in central Nebraska. Their homesteads were right along the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad, north of the Union Pacific Line that formed the eastern stretch of the Transcontinental Railroad. At the time, there was nothing there, no town, no village, not even a rail stop. The little towns of Ravenna on the west and Cairo on the east hadn't even been established yet. By 1884, Michael O'Connor had had enough of the ongoing land dispute between owners and tenants in his native Ireland. His wife's brothers were now apparently successful in ranching and farming without having to deal with a greedy landlord or an indifferent government. Indeed, the situation in America under the Homestead Act of 1862, allowed anyone, including immigrants, to obtain up to 160 acres for just a nominal filing fee. The United States government wasn't acting as an obstacle to success, it was subsidizing it. Michael O'Connor had saved up enough to join Mary's brothers and he booked passage on the SS Canadian. 
He and Mary and their growing family of six kids, including my great-grandfather, seven-year-old Thomas, landed in Boston on June 3, 1884. Within a week, Michael was in the land office in Grand Island putting down $18 on 160 acres of Cherry Creek Township at Section 14, 12 North, 13 West, right next to the Kind Brothers. The Homestead Act of 1862 was passed and signed into law by Abraham Lincoln after the Southern states seceded from the Union and effectively removed the issue of slavery as a political impediment to mass settlement. The new law established a three-step process for acquiring a homestead, filing an application, improving the land, and filing for deed of title. Any U.S. citizen or intended citizen who'd never borne arms against the U.S. government, so that meant no ex-Confederates, could file an application and lay claim to 160 acres of surveyed government land. During the course of the next five years, the homesteader had to live on the land and improve it by building a 12 by 14 minimum dwelling and growing crops. After five years, the homesteader could file for his patent or deed of title by submitting proof of residency and the required improvements to a local land office, like the one in Grand Island. Local land offices forwarded the paperwork to the general land office in Washington, D.C., along with a final certificate of eligibility. The case file was examined, and valid claims were granted patent to the land free and clear, except for a small registration fee. Some land speculators took advantage of a legislative loophole caused when those drafting the law's language failed to specify whether the 12 by 14 dwelling had to be in feet or in inches. Others hired phony claimants or bought abandoned land. The general land office was underfunded and unable to hire a sufficient number of investigators for its widely scattered local offices. As a result, overworked and underpaid investigators were often susceptible to bribery. Physical conditions on the frontier presented even greater challenges. Wind, blizzards, drought, plagues of insects threatened crops. Open plains meant few trees for building, forcing many to build homes out of sod. Both Michael O'Connor and Michael Kine built sod homes before adding more substantial wood frames frame structures later. Limited fuel and water supplies could turn simple cooking and heating chores into difficult trials. Ironically, even the smaller size sections took its own toll. While 160 acres may have been sufficient for an eastern farmer, it was simply not enough to sustain agriculture on the dry plains, and scarce natural vegetation made raising livestock on the prairie difficult. As a result, in many areas, the original homesteader didn't stay on the land long enough to fulfill the claim. Settlers like Michael O'Connor and Michael and Anthony Kine acquired additional acreage by taking advantage of a legal mechanism called preemption, which granted to settlers who were already inhabiting federal land the ability to purchase land that may have been slated to be sold at auction. Originally, the Preemption Act of 1841 was passed as a compromise with squatters that was later extended to legitimate settlers. Preemption offered Michael the right of first refusal, 
for adjoining or neighboring vacant, abandoned, or unclaimed land. Homesteaders who persevered, or who came in after the rail lines were built, like Michael O'Connor, were rewarded with opportunities as rapid changes in transportation to ease some of the hardships. Six months after the Homestead Act was passed, the Railroad Act was signed, and by May 1869, as Michael Kine was settling in Cherry Creek, a transcontinental railroad, the one on which Michael Kine himself had worked, stretched across the frontier, starting west from Omaha, only 150 miles away. The new railroads provided easy transportation for homesteaders, and new immigrants were lured westward by railroad companies eager to sell off excess land that inflated prices. The new rail lines also provided ready access to manufactured goods and catalog items, like those offered by retailers like Montgomery Ward, which started business in 1872. Their catalogs sold farm tools, barbed wire, linens, weapons, and even houses delivered via the rails. The local land office was situated in Grand Island, the county seat of Hall County, Nebraska. The volume History of Hall County, Nebraska, published in 1920, described an early homestead. This one is actually a description of the homestead of a relative of one of my great granduncles. He homesteaded 80 acres and secured a preemption of 40 acres. Times were hard from the first, for he could only make 50 cents a day working on a ranch. And that counts for very little when one's cash capital doesn't exceed 750. Perhaps he remembered, however, that he had once worked on a farm for two months for $5. For in those days, people were unfamiliar even with such words as millions. After securing his land, he built the regulation 12 by 14 foot sod house, kind of dwelling that, in spite of its disadvantages, has often been called exceedingly comfortable, where the family lived until better times came and another farmhouse was built. They went through the dry years of 1890 and 1894, suffered losses in crops and cattle, as did their neighbors. The National Archives holds the records of over 10 million individual land transactions. Searchable online, the land records for Michael and Anthony Kine and Michael O'Connor are included in the records for homesteads between 1863 and 1908. Michael O'Connor's complete packet includes 42 separate documents. Apparently, he began his occupancy almost as soon as he arrived in June 1884, according to his initial homestead application, dated March 13, 1887. A transcribed copy of his naturalization certificate with his signature is dated November 22, 1892. His final application for title is dated December 31, which includes his testimony as well as two neighbors as witnesses in support of his application. In answer to the question, when was your house built on the land and when did you establish actual residence, Michael responded, June 10, 1884. I had it as a preemption 80 acres of it. Describe the said house and other improvements on which you have placed the land, giving the total value. Michael listed sod house $100, stable $100, granary $60, 
Corn Crib $25, Well and Pump $60, Cellar $10, 33 acres fenced $60, 60 acres broke $120. Off on the margin, he figured the total as $545, over calculating it by $10. Perhaps math wasn't Michael's strong suit, he certainly wouldn't be the last of the O'Connors with that deficit. He finally received title to the land in January of 1893. That's the homestead in St. Michael that is shown in that 1899 photograph that my Uncle Larry has. It's an amazing snapshot in time, a frozen moment in a family's history, and a portrait, perhaps not unlike Grant Wood's American Gothic, of a nation in transition from a predominantly rural to a largely urban landscape. St. Michael, where Michael O'Connor joined the Kind Brothers in 1884, is today just a junction of two roads. The town, such as it was, is long gone. There is some disagreement in the available evidence over the origin of the name of St. Michael. One source uh, on Nebraska place names written in 1925 credits the naming of the village to Michael Kind. St. Michael was established by the Lincoln Land Company in 1886, it says. An Irishman named Michael Kine owned the land on which the town was located, and he told the company he would sell it to them cheap if they would name the town St. Michael. Mr. Kine was a homesteader in the vicinity in 1879. But according to the county history, Buffalo County, Nebraska and its people, written in 1916, St. Michael was named for Michael O'Connor. In his biographical entry, it says, Michael O'Connor entered 160 acres as a homestead, and he also took up 80 acres as a tree claim. He first put up a sod house, in which he lived for a decade, when pioneer improvements gave way before the advantages of modern civilization. For several years, he was one of the extensive sheep ranchers of Buffalo County, running on his ranch as many as 10,000 head of sheep but in later years, he has given his attention largely to the cattle industry and now has under his control some 1,440 acres of land, but in recent years has turned over the operation of much of his farmlands to his sons. When the town of St. Michael, which he helped survey, was established, it was named in his honor by the townsite company. He was instrumental in securing the establishment of the post office at St. Michael and was appointed the first postmaster, and later he was honored with the election as mayor of the town, which was the beginning of an election year by year that has continued him in office without opposition to the present time. Those large, sometimes multi-volume county histories and biographies that were so popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries were actually a sort of subscription vanity press that relied on surveys that subscribers filled out in order to appear in the book. Biographical information was often written by the subject himself or his family. One rarely finds anything critical in those bios, and sometimes facts are erroneous or embellished. This one, Michael's bio, also appears to have been the basis for his obituary in the Grand Island Independent when he died in 1924. To be sure, 
After 1887, Michael O'Connor bought up hundreds of acres of land south of St. Michael's, expanding his ranch to accommodate more sheep and cattle and providing his sons with a living should they wish to continue in the area. He was mayor, a member of the town board, the first postmaster, member of the school board, and justice of the peace for many years before his retirement. Apparently, Michael O'Connor was a bit of a character as well. This story appeared in the Nebraska State Journal in Lincoln, Nebraska in 1904. The headline, Rival Mayors Clash, subheading St. Michael Official Imprisoned by Mayor of Ravenna. When the mayor of St. Michael, Michael O'Connor by name, met the mayor of Ravenna here yesterday afternoon, the time-honored salutation that passed between the governors of the two Carolinas was spoken. That happens to refer to an old saying, it's been a damn long time between drinks. But the mayor of Ravenna took umbrage at the sour mash breath of his neighbor official and had him carted off to the cooler. Later in the evening, the St. Michael official was taken before Justice Salisbury and charged with being drunk and creating a disturbance. He pleaded guilty to the charges and was assessed a fine of $5 in costs, a total of $17.50 which was promptly paid. Mr. O'Connor, after dwelling for some time on the beauties of liberty and freedom, betook himself back to his own bailiwick, avowing it would be many a day before he would again call to pay his compliments to a Ravenna official. By 1900, Michael Kine had moved a little further north of St. Michael to Howard County and then on to purchase acreage 100 miles to the west in McPherson County. He died there in 1913. Anthony Kine remained in Buffalo County, moving from St. Michael to nearby Ravenna in 1920. He died there three years later, at the age of 84. Mary Elizabeth Kine O'Connor died in 1915 in St. Michael. Her husband, Michael O'Connor, died in 1924 in nearby Shelton, being attended to by their eldest daughter, Kate, who never married. Michael's second son, Patrick, lived in the St. Michael, Ravenna, Grand Island area all his life, working the land his father had left him, and with his wife, Anna, raising their own four children, and even a few of his brother's kids. Michael Jr. married Meta Christine Hatt in 1907. They had two children, but he struggled with depression and took his own life in 1930. David and John left Nebraska to work on the railroads throughout the western United States. Anthony, the youngest, died in the flu epidemic of 1918 that killed nearly 700,000 Americans and 20 to 50 million worldwide. Michael's eldest son, Thomas, my great-grandfather, was never really a farmer. He left for Colorado in 1920, after my great-grandmother died, and then for California a few years later. I'll have more on their story, how they came to meet and start the family that would lead to me in a future post. That's it for now. My thanks to my cousins Ron O'Connor and Sharon Hill Newman and my Uncle Larry for copies of and links to documents and images. If you'd like to see the images, documents, and a copy of Michael O'Connor's homestead application mentioned in this episode, be sure to visit the website 
at oconnor.home.blog. This podcast was written and produced by me, Gerald O'Connor. The theme music is by Andy Slatter at Audio Jungle, with additional music by Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time on Hand Me Down.